This morning, Matt asked me if I would read from 1 Corinthians 13, and I love this passage, but we discussed it and realized that it's used a lot in weddings, and oftentimes it's missing its context. So Matt asked me if I would just take a moment, and I, I promise I'll try to be brief, to just give you the context of what this is talking about. It's the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. We talk about love. But in the midst of this, the chapters before and the chapters after are talking about spiritual gifts that come from God. So here's what I want to point to you today. The word for love used in this chapter is the word agape. And if you've been in church long enough, you know that that's often referred to as the divine love, as opposed to the phileo, which is the brotherly love. And what I would like to challenge you today to maybe rethink how we've been taught and how we've learned what that love really means. That love, when it's talking about agape or a phileo, either a divine self-sacrificial love towards others or a kindred brotherly love, those are two expressions of the same love. And that love comes from God. Which is why in 1 Corinthians, it is listed as a spiritual gift. That the gift comes because of a relationship with Jesus from God. The essence of love is God. But the expression of love changes on context. With that being said, let us begin with 1 one of first corinthians 13 if i speak with the tongues of men and of angels but i do not have love i have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal if i have the gift of prophecy and i know all mysteries and all knowledge and if i have all faith so that to remove mountains but do not have love i am nothing and if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and I surrender my body to, the, to be burned, but I do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account the wrong suffered does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfect comes... The partial will be done away with. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have been also fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Let me implore you today as we continue in the time of prayer and preaching of the word. Let me just encourage you. 
we can spend our time focusing on the periphery of life. Those things that distract us. The job, the school, the grandkids, the kids, the friends, the family. The struggles, the sacrifices, the illness. But if we have not centered our lives on the gospel, if we've not centered on our lives on the love of Christ on display for us, then these things are meaningless. Let us look today as we discuss family to Christ as our example and let us love each other. Let us pray. Father God, I come before you and I thank you for an opportunity to just read your word. Lord, I pray that your word will not return void to us, that you will move on our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, I thank you for sending your Son. Jesus, I I thank you for dying on that cross. And Holy Spirit, I thank you for moving on my heart and drawing me closer to Jesus. Let us be edified and challenged today in God's Word. It is in Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Bruce. I'm going to take this moment to send our kids on out. And those who just promoted up, you get to stay. So all the other kids, you're you're heading on out. And uh, as they're heading out, I would love for you to go to the book of Ephesians that we've been in all the way since February. But today we're going to be in our last chapter, chapter 5, or the last bit of chapter 5, because next week we're going to be in chapter 6. So we're going to be in chapter 5. And today's verses are going to be 25 through 33. And we're going to be jumping into that passage. But before we do, I need to make an apology. I need to make an, I do need to make an apology, Charlie. And uh, I need to let you know that last week I failed you. I failed you last week and I want to fix it for those of you who returned. Uh, For those that I know some are actually being dropped off at college this weekend. Hopefully they have a chance to watch online. I know some weren't able to make it. Hopefully they're able to watch online. But last week, I need to apologize as I talked about Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24, that covered the first half of this spirit-filled marriage that we talked about. We talked about part one and the role and the responsibility of the Christian wife in marriage. Today, we're going to be talking about part two, the role and the responsibility of the husband in the Christian marriage. Now, here's what I came to realize as I listened back to the message on where I failed you. The percentage of people who are in this room who are wives or husbands that want to make sure their wives heard last week, um, it's less than the whole. And and when you think about that, what I always want to do when I approach a sermon is I want to make sure I'm not wasting anybody's Sunday. That that there's not somebody who comes in here and went, he's not speaking to me. God's not speaking to me through Matt. So therefore I will shut down and think about the rest of the week. And last week was a busy week. So it's entirely possible that that happened. I don't want that to happen. I I want these messages to be something that, that everyone gets something from to apply to their daily lives for the glory of God. To to make sure that today you don't shut down because you're like, well, I'm not a husband either. You know, whatever the the excuse might be. I want to make sure that we lay the foundation that I didn't lay down last week. And that is this. This passage that we're talking about today 
the marriage in general, it is ultimately about Christ and his church. It's ultimately about Christ and his church. That is the foundation. That is the point that all of this flows from. That is the point that your marriage flows, flows from, whether you're married yet or you're going to be, or maybe you'll never want to be married. I don't know. But our lives flow from the fact of this passage that it's ultimately about Christ and his church. Even though it's the longest, most detailed passage on marriage in the Bible, it's ultimately about Christ and his church. A heavenly marriage that sets the tone and sets the example for the earthly marriage. So let's read it together with that foundation in mind. We're going to go back to verses 22 through 24 as well to include today. So it's all under that same foundation. Here's what it says. It says this in verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of the water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides for it and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. The mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. should have just said that right up front, right? Right there. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. Where I failed that last week, I will cover this week, because I truly believe when we first understand the heavenly marriage, it will help us better understand the earthly marriage and the man and woman's role within it. I know this may sound crazy, but the government does not get to define the meaning of marriage. Society does not get to define the meaning of marriage. God gave us the meaning of marriage even before creation. And he does it by showing us the heavenly marriage of Christ and the church. So let's look at what this heavenly marriage of Christ and his bride, the church, looks like. What does it mean to be the bride of Christ? What does it mean to be the the wife of of Christ. And sometimes we can kind of, we have to make sure we're seeing this in the visual that is being portrayed because it can get confusing. But what does it mean? See, in a couple of weeks, we're not going to have service in here. In a couple of weeks, it'll be Labor Day weekend, and we set, uh, generally set aside Labor Day weekend for a thing we call Be the Church. And we encourage you to take that Sunday to go to your neighbors who obviously don't go to church because they'll be at home on that day. Go to those neighbors and connect with them. Whether you have a, a breakfast with them, a lunch with them, a, a, a barbecue, a, a, you can have a block party for all I care. Do what you want to do to reach out and be the church. Take that Sunday and do it. But we're doing something different also this year. We are going to ask you to come here if that's not something else that you're going to do because there is a neighborhood that is directly behind us. And that neighborhood is something that we have not effectively reached out to for the seven years that we've been in this building. And we have not taken the time to go and pray. Now, we've had people that have gone door to door, and I'm thankful for that, but we've never really knocked on those doors and said, how can we be the church for you? 
How can we pray for you? How can we come alongside you? How can we support you in the areas that you need support? So we're going to do that on Memorial Day, I'm sorry, on Labor Day weekend. And as we do that, some of you might be like, well, that's, that's a scary proposition. I don't know if I can do that. Great thing is, is Pastor Bruce is like, hey, I am all for training people up and we're going to take some time. We're going to walk through how to do it. But we're simply just going to ask, how can we pray for you? Just build that relationship. Be the church. Now, I tell you that for this reason, because if we really want to know what it means to be the church, if we really want to know what it means to, to live like the church, we have to see it in this passage. Because what he tells wives to do, and we talked about last week, he sets forth the example of that's what the church is supposed to do first. And same thing for husbands. That's what Christ is doing and has done for us. If we look and say, well, we want to be the church and we want to be in submission to Christ and what he's called us to do, which is reach out to our neighbors. How do we go about doing that? And this illustration is right in front of us today. So if we understand this illustration, if we understand the foundation of what Christ has done, it will help us live in submission as a church to his will instead of going after our own. So our first thing that we need to understand, really I wrote down four things, but the first thing is this. If you're looking at this whole dating relationship, this whole marriage relationship, the first thing you understand is that Christ loved us before we were attractive. That is a great foundational point for us to understand. Christ loved us before we were attractive. Now, Kyle was reading over my shoulder as I was putting the notes in. He's like, well, what does that mean? I'm like, well, wait till about 10.45 and I'll let you know. There are a lot of things that attract us to our spouse. Sometimes it's looks. Sometimes it's our brain. Sometimes it's personality. Sometimes it's faithfulness. Sometimes it's money. Let's just be honest. It's all different things for all different people. Sometimes you look at people, Christy and I call them no matches. Because you're like, how in the world did that couple get together? <laughs> you, you have that, but to each his own kind of mentality. The beauty is in the eye of the beholder. You, you know that, we know that, but the truth is, is this. Scripture tells us Christ did not find us attractive in any way, shape, or form. We were just ugly. I mean, U-G-L-Y, you ain't got no alibi, you ugly, you ugly. We were. And, and there's nothing else to, to, to really break that down. What he did is he set out to make us attractive by giving his life. That is what Christ did. He set out to make us pretty. He set out to make us wise. He set out to make us faithful by choosing us and loving us by dying for us, even while we are still sinners. That is a foundational thing that we understand that it will help us to respond in kind. The second thing is this. Christ gave himself for us. Christ gave himself for us. Today, marriage is different than it was in that first century. There's a connection that takes place. I'll use the word a wooing, a, a, a trying to, to win your spouse. Then there's a falling in love, and then there's a price to be paid. And I don't say that jokingly. There is a price to be paid, and that's the price that we're even going to look at today. But back in the day, the price was paid up front. It was a dowry. And Christ paid the price first with his own perfect, sinless life going to the cross. It was a self-sacrificing love that even Pastor Bruce described as he was describing 1 Corinthians 13. That he died for us while we were still sinners. 
while we were still ugly, ungodly enemies of His. So here, here's the picture. Christ didn't just simply give Himself up for an ugly, inside-and-out bride. He gave Himself up for a bride that was completely repulsed by Him. Didn't want Him, but yet He gave Himself up. That should help set that foundation. The third thing we see is this. Christ loved the church specifically or uniquely. He loved the church specifically and or uniquely. When Jesus stepped out of heaven, put on flesh, lived the perfect life, died that substitutionary death, he did it with the church in mind. He did it with you in mind. He did it with me in mind. And as we look at that, as we think about that, he had it specifically about that. Now you might think, well, hang on a second. What about John 3, 16, where it says, for God so loved the world? And that is, a hundred percent true but christ died specifically for his bride let me explain it this way he he had the the church in mind my love for my wife is different than my love for any other woman in my life my love for christy is different or unique and it needs to be different and unique as we will see shortly than the love i have for my daughters than the, the love that I have for my sisters, than the love that I have for my sisters in Christ. If it was all the same love, that would be weird. You laugh, and you know why you laugh, because it would be awkward weird if I'm like, I love everybody. It's all the same. It would just be weird. Well, Christ is the same thing. We have to see the picture there. If it weren't, there'd be problems. If it wasn't specific, there'd be problems. And that's where sometimes I think we get this confusion. Well, Christ died for the whole world. We don't need to accept him. Everybody's going to heaven. No, he died for the church. Those who would accept him and follow him and become part of his body. He chose. The fourth thing we see is Christ cleanses us from sin, guilt, and shame. Before Christ, again, we were all unattractive in every sense of the word. We're enemies. We're filthy. And we're covered with guilt and shame of sin upon us as well as in us. But then you look at verse 25 and 26. And it says these words, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of the water of the word. We see this picture of self-sacrifice with a purpose of cleansing. I want you to think about baptism for a second. Some of you have been baptized. Some of you have not. If you have not, please talk to me after the service today. I would love to to explain to you why it's so important. But I'll give you a little touch on right now. It represents us dying with Christ as we're buried in that water. It represents being cleansed by His death so that we can be raised again to a new life. So that we can walk worthy, as we've talked about in the Word. To be filled with the Spirit. It is the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all of our sin. This is the picture that Paul is trying to lay out for us. A foundation that this is what Christ has done for the church. So therefore, we need to understand this foundation as we begin to look at submission. That we begin to look at love and respect and to take care of and all the things that he's going to talk about next. That Christ loved us before we were attracted. That he gave himself up for us. He did it with all of us specifically on his mind. And he cleansed us from all the guilt and shame. This is why the church should respond in submission. To do the Lord's will. 
And the next thing we see is this picture of marriage. It begins to unfold. As a matter of fact, we talked about it last week. When a husband and wife respond to each other in the same manner laid out, we are putting Christ on display. We are putting Christ on display. See, marriage is the doing of God. He created it, but it's also the display of God. He created it for a purpose, to display himself. And maybe, maybe that's why the world so badly wants to redefine it. Maybe that's why there's such confusion around marriage and confusion around roles and even confusion around genders that should be married. Maybe that's it. They're trying to undercut what God has already created. And I'm going to go back to something again that I talked about last week, and that was the first human marriage of Adam and Eve. One man, one woman, working together for the glory of God. Created equal. Equal in the image of God. Equally blessed by God. Equal in personhood. Equal in value. Equal in importance, but different in their roles. Different in their roles. Their roles work together in a complementarian union. Think about this. The creation story tells us that Adam was alone. And you know what the Bible says? It was not good. So what does God do? He puts Adam into a deep sleep. He takes a rib out of Adam and he creates woman. The man then gives woman a name. Now this is something I didn't mention last week, but in ancient times, it was a place of authority to give something a name. That's why Adam named all the animals. But then he took the leadership role in giving woman a name. And as we read it last week, and I had you underline it if you did, said God made a helper for Adam. But something I did not mention last week is what that word helper actually means. Helper is found elsewhere in the Bible, in the Old Testament especially, as military reinforcements. As military reinforcements. That is what. The battle is going to be lost without help. And guess what? God created a helper for Adam because the battle would be lost without help. And depending upon your translation, it either says a corresponding helper or a comparable helper. That corresponding or comparable means opposite of. It means opposite of. Someone to come in and fill the gaps that I can't do on my own. It's somebody to come in and make it whole. A complementary union. Guess what? Men and women are different. I know, I'm telling you the truth. And guess what? That's on purpose. It's on purpose. That is how marriage is supposed to work. Differences working together for the glory of God. Did you realize, I'm not a science person. I didn't like science. I didn't do well in science. But from the very basics and the very beginning of it all, from the very smallest little things, do you realize that it's positives and negatives that attract to build things up? It's opposites that build things up when they're attracted together. It's almost like God had this plan that it would carry out through all of his creation and be that way. And in that plan, guess what? The ultimate opposites attract. Christ embraced the ultimate opposite of sinful humanity and brought himself into a relationship with it. This is his role and guess what? That's the role that husbands are called to follow. He says a high bar for marriage and a high bar for love. And as we've seen the foundation, let's now look at what it says for husbands. 
And by the way, I'm just going to let you know, I practiced with Christy last night. And she's like, you went way easier on the husbands than you did on the wives. I'm just going to give you that heads up right now. I don't believe it, but that's what she said. What is the husband's responsibility? Verse 25, very clear. Husbands, love your wives. At first glance, that sounds pretty easy. Buy them some flowers, take them out to eat, do man stuff around the house while they go shopping. A lot of husbands, that's their idea. We, we have some odd ideas about what it means to love our wives sometimes. But the problem is the further you go into the verse, you realize how beyond humanly possible it is to do exactly what we've been called to do. It's because it's a little frightening when you start looking at it and some of the things we're called to do. As a matter of fact, it's even a little frightening when you realize that we're going to be held accountable, men, on how we love our wives. You know what Paul didn't say? He didn't say, love your wives as the world loves. He says, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Love your wives as a spirit-filled, Christ-like love. Not like the world loves. So what does that look like? What does that look like as we lay this foundation of a reflection of Christ loving the church? Well, it starts off with sacrificial love. We've already mentioned it. But the end of verse 25 says, and he gave himself for her. We've already touched on it, but Christ's sacrifice was enormous for his bride. Christ's sacrifice was enormous for his bride. And Pastor Bruce already touched on it. He didn't read my notes ahead of time, so he didn't know I was also going to talk about it. But I will also talk about that word love. The word love that it says, love your, your wives. That's it. But what does that love mean? And again, he mentioned the, the two of the three words that, that go into it. There are three that the Greeks use to describe love. The first one is eros. The second one is phileo or phileia. And the third one is agape. Let me go through the definitions of one. Eros is a self-seeking, passionate love that meets personal desires. The second one, as you may know, that the beginning of the word Philadelphia and that idea of the city of brotherly love, but if you've ever been there, it's anything but. Um, yeah, yeah, there's some people that, I was like, wow, really? <laughs> Missed on that one. It's a friendship, partnership love with a certain affection and closeness. It's brotherly. The third one, agape, as Pastor Bruce already referred to, is a kind of love that seeks the highest good of the other, even at the price of one's own comfort, safety, and benefit. See, the world likes the first two. They like the first two, and you're going to see them play out in a basic marriage. One that doesn't have a foundation on Christ or, or anything even remotely religious. You're going to see that eros love. You know, man, I grew up in a uh, generation that the church said that uh, everything physical outside of marriage was a bad thing. And, and they really laid it out there for you and let you know it was a bad thing. But the second you got married, it became good. And so the whole desire of any teenage boy was, well, I better get married, dang it. So I'm not in God's wrong eyes. But you're getting married for the wrong reason. That's that eros love thing, that personal desires. The brotherly love kind of helps keep it go along. That, that's when uh, you see some marriages that just they kind of exist. They're, they're that kind of uh, roommate type status. But then you have this agape love. 
the one that Paul is specifically mentioning, the one he calls husbands to, unconditional, self-sacrificing love. You ever wonder why he used Christ as the example? Yeah, I didn't either. Because he's a perfect example of that love. And let me say this in the least scary way possible, men, especially men who are not married yet. Marriage is a call to die. I know that's, I don't know how much less scary I can get than that. Dying to yourself, dying to your wishes, dying to your schedule, dying to your plans, dying to your even good ambitions. It means giving yourself away for the sake of your bride. It means crucifying your flesh and its desires and being faithful to your bride and not bringing in the junk of the world that is going to be out there, the lust, the anger, or the pride, those things that are going to be temptations. Keep them out. Men, if your love isn't sacrificial, your wife will know it. If you are selfish in your relationship with you, with her, you're going to see it affect your marriage negatively. If you're unwilling to give up whatever is necessary, it will be a difficult hurdle for her to submit to you because of that. This conflict is going to lead into a downward spiral. And we talked about that last week. But not only is marriage a call to die, it's also a call to serve. We need to serve. Christ-like living means taking the initiative, men. You are not waiting for your wife to submit to do something. Can you imagine if Christ had waited for the church to submit? Yeah, we wouldn't be meeting right now, I'll tell you that. We're the ones to take the first action. Too many men, too many husbands are passive, and we don't take the lead. We've been called to take the lead, but we don't. We're to love and to cherish and to nurture and protect our brides. You know, I've been reading a book called a book called Manhood by a guy named Josh Hawley. Josh Hawley is a U.S. senator from the state of Missouri. Uh, he's a believer. And he's uh, obviously right in the mix of all things that are political when it comes to all these kind of things. And uh, this book on manhood just talks about the effects of the lack of manhood in our society and the things that it has carried over and the ramifications we've seen for years and years and years. But one of the big things it pointed out was it started at the beginning. And it talks about Adam and that desire that that he was given by God to rule over and to subdue. But yet when it came to the serpent going to Eve, where was Adam? And he said he dropped the ball. His job was to be there to nurture and protect, and he was doing neither. We don't know where he was at in the picture, but he came in later. And we see the ramifications and the consequences because of it. We are to be active men, actively agape, loving our wives. And really, it does go for all of us as brothers and sisters in Christ that we are to be loving one another. There's many commands within the Bible that talk about that. But Pastor Bruce read 1 Corinthians 13 up front. He explains it very well, that Christ-like love. But I want to read for you verses 4 through 6 again. As it says this, just so you get the action part of it all. Love is patient. It means it doesn't retaliate. Love is kind. It means we have words and actions of kindness. Love does not envy. That means we are proud of others when they do well. It's not boastful. It doesn't draw attention to ourselves, and it's not arrogant because we don't need to be number one. It's not rude, which would be be compassionate and respectful. It's not self-seeking, so I'm not the center of it all. 
It's not irritable. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It finds no joy in unrighteousness, which means we don't celebrate sin. We don't allow sin to come in. We don't love it, but we rejoice in the truth, even though it may hurt a little bit. It is love in action. That is Christ-like love. That is Christ-like service. And it has a Christ-like attitude that we talked about last week with Philippians chapter 2. Then it moves from sacrificial love into a sanctifying love. Verse 26 and 27. Verse 26 actually says to make her holy. Well, the word sanctify means to make holy or to set apart. To make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of the water by the word. In the marriage ceremony. The idea of a marriage ceremony is to be set apart. The husband is being set apart for the wife. The wife is being set apart for the husband. They're being set apart for each other. For what reason? To work together. Husband, one of the jobs that God gives us is to call us to lay down our lives and propel our wives towards godly living. One of our key roles is to help our wives reach spiritual maturity in Christ and build them up every chance that we get. It involves relating to your wife as a sister in Christ, not just your mate. And we need to do whatever it takes to help them grow in purity and in godliness. We need to encourage them to use their gifts and their talents for the glory of God. And it also includes praying with them and opening up ourselves spiritually. I read all of that, and I will tell you right now that I fail miserably at that. Christy will second that that I don't do my job well enough. There are days that I do well and there's weeks that I don't. And that's something that I, when, when Christy said, oh, you, have, you went easy on them. I'm not going easy on myself. This is where I fail. And this is where most men fail from what I've seen. As leaders, we need to lead. And the thing that I see across the church especially is that the biggest weakness we have is the area of spiritual leadership in the church, in the home, with our wives, with our kids. We're far too passive. We need to be more concerned with spiritual well-being of those that are in our house. Verse 27 carries out the why. Why did Christ do it? Why do we need to do it? He did it to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but be holy and blameless through compassion and love with grace and mercy christ takes away our blame and our shame he's accepted us where we are and is working in us to make us holy and blameless guess what that means as a husband it means that i don't demand perfection but instead i extend grace and mercy to move my wife closer to christ on the flip side of that wives as you're submitting to your husbands we extend grace and mercy as well to her husbands to strive to also be more like Christ. So we have some S's going on here. Last week we had C's. This week we have some S's. It's all Baptist stuff. Actually, Paul did it. I just had to just write it down. Verse 28 through 30 gives us another S word, and that is this, a satisfying love. In the marriage relationship, you have three words, three words I like to talk to when I do marriage counseling or premarital counseling, and that is this. It's leave, weave, and cleave. It's found in Genesis Leave, you leave your mother and father. Weave, you join together of your lives. And cleave, which sometimes used to make my mind go, what? hang on a second. Cleave, I would think, cleaver, cut it in half. That's not it, all right? Actually, cleave is another word for cement. We're cementing into one flesh. We're becoming one. And we see that in verse 31. 
But what he does here is he actually explains verse 31, that one flesh idea, with reference through 28 through 30. So let me read that for you. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. I don't know about you, I don't have any problem taking care of myself. If I have a need, I meet it. If I have a want, I justify why I need to get it. Right? I mean, I'm just being honest. You guys can be honest as well. When, when I get there, if, if I can figure out how to get it, I'm going to. Well, guess what Paul says? Love your wife the same way. Provide for her. Care for her. The things that you long for, like affection and intimacy and joy and security and health and companionship and community and love, how are we doing with providing for our wives in those areas? Do you know how many marriage counseling sessions that I've sat through and led with a statement that began with, I'm starving for blank. I'm starving for affection, intimacy, joy, security. I'm starving for these things. The wives say that too many times because the men have dropped the ball. When this one flesh idea It's a shared life. Sometimes we think it's a physical thing, and it's partly physical, but it's also mental, spiritual, and emotional. Remember that first and foremost picture of Christ in His church? Do you remember when it said this picture of what God has done by finding that unattractive bride and bringing it close? There's a reconciliation and a unity that take place. Do we see that in Christian marriages to provide the proper picture of that on display? And if we don't, how can we? How can we? How can we care more for our wives? How can we take this next step? How are we doing in that area? Are we taking care of them physically, mentally, spiritually, lovingly? How do we do better? And the next question, why do we fail in these areas? Well, I asked that whopper of a question last last week, and this left you hanging with it. We walked out. But I said, why do we fail? And the answer simply is this. We're not spirit-filled. There's a whole idea of being a spirit-filled marriage. We're not filled with the Spirit. There's a pretty good chance that's what it's coming down to, that we're trying to do everything on our own and we're failing at it. We are not in the Word of God and we see the results. See, as we're in mutual submission to each other, we'll see the positive. But if we are not, and we are not in Christ in the church, or acting like Christ in the church, what do we do? The wife respecting and helping the husband, and the husband loving and honoring the wife, is that something that's taking place in our households? The more we do it, though, the more beautiful, awesome, and and profound mystery of Christ is revealed to this world. If you look at the parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 through Chapter 4, verse 1, it starts off with this. Let the word of Christ dwell in us. That's the answer. Be spirit-filled. Let Christ dwell in us. And then Paul wraps up in verse 33 by saying this. To sum up, I mean, he, re- he says, this is how I'm wrapping it up. Each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. I mentioned these two words last week. I'll mention them again. Love and respect. These are essential elements to a spirit-filled marriage. Which leads to these questions. What woman would not respect and support a husband 
that loved her as much as he loved himself. As sacrificially and tenderly and purely as Christ loved his bride, what woman would not respect and support a husband like that? What wife would not follow and submit to a husband who has followed Christ's model of servant leadership? We need to take the initiative. See, I believe all of us long to be loved and respected, provided for and cared for. Our challenges today is that that's not what the world teaches. It's very much that self-eros love. Love, and, and I have to be at the beginning of it, and I have to be at the end of it, and I have to be at the middle of it. Our challenge today is to take the attitudes that Christ is laying out there for us and take the actions and put them into our lives, even if we're single, and put them into our marriages and watch Christ transform them into a model that of His relationship, of His relationship with the church that the world so desperately needs to see. That's our challenge today. Men, it starts with us because we have to take the lead. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are and thank you for crushing our toes every once in a while. Thanks for showing us where we fail, but thank you also for the grace and mercy when we do. Thanks for the way you continue to lead and guide and direct. Thank you for the words that have preserved, been preserved for thousands of years of Paul to speak to us even today on what your picture of marriage should and could look like. God, may we lay ourselves down today in humble submission to you, first and foremost, that we understand what you would have us to do because of the example you set for the way that you chose your bride, the church. And that, God, our lives would be an amazing representation of that, that people could only point and say, that's all because of the glory of God. God, we want you to be lifted up. We praise your name this morning. Pray it all in that holy name. Amen.